Hi, everyone. It's Andrew. I hope everyone's staying safe and healthy through the coronavirus pandemic. Before we get started with today's episode, I want to give a shout out to the Cardio Nerds podcast. If you're not already listening to their podcast or checking out their website, uh, you should be. They are really good uh, medical educators, uh, Dan Ambender and Amit Goyal. They put together a really good show. They put out a lot of material. Uh, highly recommend that you head over and check out their stuff. In today's episode, I met with Dr. Jane Wilcox. She's from Northwestern University, and we discussed about the topic of myocardial recovery. You may have seen patients who have heart failure with reduced ejection fraction who then normalize their ejection fraction after medical or device treatments, you know, not in response to ventricular assist devices or heart transplants. She has a myocardial recovery clinic up there at Northwestern and does a lot of research in this area. So I had a number of questions with her about how to think about those patients and certain uh, clinical questions that come up. If you're enjoying EP Cardiology, I would ask for a favor that you give the show a shout out on your social media channels or head over to iTunes and leave a review on the, on the webpage. It really helps uh, find new listeners for the show. And with that, we'll get started with today's episode. This is AP Cardiology, and this is your host, Andrew Perry. All right, thank you for meeting with me today, Dr. Wilcox. May I have you introduce yourself uh, for our audience? Well, thank you so much, Andrew, for having me. My name is Jane Wilcox. I am an assistant professor at Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine in Chicago, Illinois. I direct our myocardial recovery program. I'm an advanced heart failure cardiologist. So I see patients from, um, uh, you know, who are very sick, who need a transplant and an LVAD. And I specialize in patients who have uh, stage C heart failure, and we focus on recovering their ventricular performance. So glad to be here with you today. Great. Perfect. Thank you so much. This is a topic I've been wanting to do for a little while now. Uh, I think it's a topic, an issue of you know myocardial recovery or patients who recover their ejection fraction that doesn't get a lot of attention. Yeah. So <laughs> let me start with presenting a typical case uh, that I've encountered. So we have a 64-year-old woman. She has a history of a non-ischemic cardiomyopathy diagnosed about a year ago. Her ejection fraction at the time of her diagnosis was 30%. After a few months of therapy with lisinopril, metoprolol, and spironolactone with some Lasix, her ejection fraction was still 35%. Uh, so she had an ICD implanted for primary prevention. Uh, at, the time, at that time, her ECG, uh, she has a right bundle branch block morphology with a QRS of 110. Um, she comes back to see us about a year later. Uh, and her an echo at that time demonstrates that her ejection fraction is now up to 55%. And in the interim, she's been able to come off of her Lasix, but she remains on her lisinopril, metoprolol, and spironolactone. So I think one basic question that comes up when they see these patients is, how do we even categorize her at this moment? Uh, now that we're seeing her, her ejection fraction has improved. Is she someone that we still talk about in terms of HEF-REF, heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, or HEF-PEF, 
or is there another way that we should be categorizing her? So these are all great questions. Um, I think the first point about this lady is that she has she has recovered her ejection fraction despite us failing to do forced titration of medical therapy. <laughs> That's our first point. So um, we know from the CHAMP HF registry that you know the appropriate doses of guideline directed medical therapy in patients with reduced ejection heart failure is abysmal. It's one percent, right? So um, she has responded, um, you know, to lisinopril, which really isn't the standard of care right now would be the standard of care would be an ARNI, high dose, either metoprolol or carvedilol, um, and then the MRA, as you mentioned. But she has, in fact, improved her ejection fraction, so she has recovered cardiomyopathy, and we would categorize her as heart failure with recovered EF. So she is phenotypically like a reduced ejection heart failure patient uh, with a recovered ejection fraction, so HEF-REC EF or heart failure with um, improved ejection fraction. Those are the two uh, common nomenclatures that we've seen. Okay. Yeah. Hef, rec, EF, um, or heart failure with recovered ejection fraction. You're stating that those are phenotypically different. And I think there's also some data that they are even biochemically or, um, uh, you know, with their uh, circulating catecholamines with their BNP with those sorts of levels that they're also different in those respects. Could you describe how this category is phenotypically uh, and uh, maybe biochemically different from those two other categories? Yeah. So, well, I would step back a little bit. So this patient is sort of always a reduced ejection fraction cardiomyopathy patient. So there, she will be phenotypically similar to um, those reduced EF patients, just that she has responded favorably to guideline-directed medical therapy, so neurohormonal antagonists. So she, in fact, does accrue benefit from um, these medicines. And we'll talk a little bit, I imagine, about um, how long she needs to stay on these medicines and could we stop some of these medicines. And so she really is in remission from her heart failure with reduced EF with improved ventricular performance. As far as the biochemical um, uh, question, so definitely lower levels of circulating biomarkers like NT, pro-BNP, galactin, um, you know, signs of fibrosis, um, ST2. So definitely in remission with lower levels of biomarkers, but still sort of what we would call at risk for future heart failure events. So I really like the oncologic corollary here when we think about patients who are five years, six years out from their breast cancer, you know, they, they're sort of, we think out of the woods, but we still follow them very closely um, for recurrence. And so that's how we should be thinking about this heart failure population. That's, uh, that's great. You use the word, uh, she's in remission right now and thereby implying this corollary with uh, oncology there's this idea of myocardial remission versus myocardial recovery that's discussed right. in the literature. Could you elaborate on that? Yeah, so we've, I've thought about this a lot and I talk about this with all my you know, friends and we geek out a little bit. <laughs> and you know, the answer is it, it sort of doesn't matter. I think as long as the patient is feeling better, um, they, they feel recovered, right? But what the way when it matters is is when we think about um, implications for long term medical therapy. If a patient truly is quote unquote recovered, 
that implies that they don't need um, long-term medical therapy with you know, neurohormonal antagonists. I think um, we in 2020 uh, don't have the data to differentiate who is recovered and who is in remission. I think my uh, friend uh, and mentor, Doug Mann, um, would say uh, he wrote a great paper with Dan Burkhoff several years ago now, and the best definition of recovery, true recovery that I can, uh, that I've found over the years is the structure and function are both normal. So the cell, at a cellular level, things are working normally. Structurally, the heart has returned to its normal um, wall tension state. So the diameter has shrunk down, the thickness has regressed, and the function is normal. So that would be ventricular performance. Um, you know, again, we just don't have great ways, perfect ways to say you are in you are recovered versus you are in remission. And so I think um, as a field right now, we treat patients as they are uh, in remission. Okay. Okay. Beautiful. Thank you. Sure. Um, now, thinking about our patient that we described here, all I mentioned was that she was just she had a non-ischemic cardiomyopathy. So, you know, she had a cath with, you know, some luminal irregularities, so really no obstructive coronary disease. When we're thinking about patients who recover their ejection fraction, are there certain types of non-ischemic cardiomyopathy that are more common than others to have a recover their ejection fraction? And actually, maybe even more broadly speaking, um, maybe taking a step back first is, the question of patients with ischemic cardiomyopathy versus those with a non-ischemic, are there differences in those groups and how frequently they recover their ejection fraction? This is a great, great question. And it's a little muddy because the data that we have, um, most of it is, is, well, most of it is either observational or re retrospective single center studies or consortium. And so when we look at the data about sort of percent of who recovers and responds, it's all um, sort of based on that population. So any, you know, the, if you look at the Penn heart failure study, which is an advanced population, you know, a referral population, the incidence of recovery there is less than 10%. Well, so then you think, well, it's not that common. Um, it's more likely in non-ischemics. Then you look at other studies, observational studies, you know, we look at the Emory study or um, clinical trial data from Valheft and, um, or, or even um, data from Italy, looking at the, 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 they have some registries there, where recovery may be more common in the sort of 30%. And so really when we sort of delve into this, um, the predictors of recovery um, or things that would be associated with recovery are shorter duration, non-ischemic status, um, women, which sort of fits with women be having, being more likely to have non-ischemic cardiomyopathy, um, smaller volumes, so sort of less adverse remodeling. If someone is not super dilated, they don't have a lot of scar on their MRI, um, you know, they have the ability to tolerate medical therapy. Those are all things when I see that clinically, you know, I talk to my patients and say, well, you've got some markers that look like you have, um, you, you know, you'll respond favorably to uh, GDMT. And, you know, recovery is one of those things that's always kind of diagnosed in the retrospectoscope. We don't have great ways of saying, you know, uh, based on your tumor markers, you know, Mrs. Jones, you are most likely to have an X percent here. So we're, we're a little bit behind oncology 
but my hope is that we get there in the future. Gotcha. Um, since you also mentioned that, uh, or touched on the point of uh, genetics in that point, when you're seeing these patients and we don't have, you know, an analogy for tumor profiles um, for our patients with heart failure, um, are there any uh, genetics or what information do we have currently about um, genes or polymorphisms that would indicate a higher likelihood of recovery uh, amongst those patients? So this is an active area of my um, research profile. And I think the what I do clinically is every patient who has DCM or dilated cardiomyopathy um, who's less than 55, we, we clinically test those patients with a, a clinically available profile that looks for about 90 candidate genes that are sort of known bad actors and are associated with cardiomyopathy. Um, if a patient has sort of a, a really bad actor, and some of those genes might be um, lamin, so laminopathies, um, filamin C, sort of um, SCN5A, really arrhythmogenic genes or genes that are um, have been studied that the natural history of that disease is sort of this progressive heart failure, fibrosis, arrhythmia. Um, that's a different conversation than a patient who has maybe a mild cardiomyopathy and a truncating variant in Titans. So Titan is the most common, um, it's the largest, largest gene in the sarcomere, largest protein in the sarcomere, and um, is probably the most common cause of dilated cardiomyopathy or alcohol or peripartum. And so there's some work um, that Titans actually respond very, very favorably to GDMT. Not always, but um, so that's a different conversation that I have with patients. That needs to be fleshed out um, much more uh, in, a, in a much more robust manner, but um, that's kind of the clinical conversation I have with patients. Gotcha. Very cool. Um, then speaking of, I think perhaps most of the clinics that I've worked in have not had or had the emphasis or perhaps even the availability or the focus to be ordering uh, genetic profiles on all the patients with a reduced ejection fraction. Um, and in part, you know, we treat everyone with guideline-directed medical therapy, you know, ACE inhibitors, beta blockers, MRAs, uh, ARNIs, if we're able to get them approved or sort of for, for our patients. When we're thinking about our arsenal of GDMT, uh, are there certain parts of those, certain medications within that, that are more likely than others to, um, to lead to recovery of ejection fraction? So um, again, really great question and something that we are trying to figure out. Um, it's hard to do these kind of clinical trials, sort of, you know, who, who would respond favorably to a certain uh, medicine as opposed to another, simply because of the way our trials have been done in the past. It's always an add-on, right? So it's, it's, it's uh, dipagliflozin or SGL2 in addition to back, background medical therapy, varicigwat in addition to background medical therapy. And so we're doing these add-on trials, and I think it's, it's a little tricky, and there may be a lack of equipoise um, to do sort of an a beta blocker only trial, right? So I think yes. the, way that, the way that we might answer these questions in the future would be trials where we start to take away medicines. 
um, in a phased manner um, to sort of identify patients who may just respond uh, favorably to a beta blocker or an ARNI compound, for example. So uh, right now we really can't say, you know, um, you know, this person is more likely to respond to an ARB as opposed to a beta blocker. Um, I will say that, um, you know, I try to get patients on on the ARNI compound and um, and a, an evidence dose beta blocker. Um, you know, that I try to do that for all my patients. The best data we have potentially, maybe, you know, when we think about genetic cardiomyopathies, maybe in Duchenne's muscular dystrophy or Becker's muscular dystrophy. So there's data there that um, ACE inhibition and MRAs actually delay progression and um, and reduce scar in um, in young boys at you know who are age nine, age ten. So this is sort of a protracted course that we could look at um, certain types of genetic cardiomyopathies. But as of right now, I think we we sort of have this one size fits all approach, and the way that we answer mm -hmm. this in the future maybe in a in a withdrawal approach, just because of the lack of equipoise. Mm -hmm. um, and speaking of trials about withdrawal, there was a trial um, recently within the last couple of years, the TREAD HF trial, um, where they took patients with a dilated cardiomyopathy who had recovered their ejection fraction, normalized their volumes and they attempted to wean their medications. Um, and for, for those patients, it was a, in a small trial of like 50 patients. And after weaning medications, you know, they were, those patients who were randomized to weaning had increased in their, uh, in their volumes and decreases in their ejection fraction. Um, are there over a very short period of period of time, actually too. <laughs> yeah. It was like over, uh, was eight, like? Weeks. eight yep. weeks, eight weeks. Yeah. So that, that was not clearly a very optimistic signal in terms of withdrawing medications, I guess, but coming back, are there, are there other patients in per, in per se, um, other patients that we might even feel comfortable starting to withdraw medications kind of circling back towards that question that we had, uh, that we've touched on a couple of times, whether medications can be tapered or withdrawn in a staged manner for some patients. So this was a, a, a wonderful, wonderfully done trial that was very rigorous. Um, and I think it was, um, you know, it was in fact kind of tricky to do, right? Some, some, some argued that maybe we, they shouldn't have done this trial, but I think um, Brian Halliday and Sanjay Prasad, who, who were the um, principal, principal investigators in the trial did a fantastic job of really um, monitoring patient safety and no one was injured and, and everyone had um, recovery from their heart failure event. So um, I think we've, we've learned a lot of lessons from TREAD-HF. The first is, is that you know, um, we just don't have great data about who is in, who has truly recovered. And I think this sort of pumped the brakes for those of us who think about recovery versus remission. And, and we all sort of accepted that maybe, maybe remission is good enough. <laughs> And that patients, um, you know, it, it's it's no fun to take a lot of medicines, and there are side effects. But um, you know, within two months, having half the population have heart a heart failure event or a rise in biomarkers, I think was um, was a was a wake up call for us. And so we, in fact, should not discontinue any medications um, for those patients that we see with recovered cardiomyopathy in our clinics. And I want to make that make sure that that point is clear. Um, but when we're thinking about you know, future trials, 
I've talked a, a bit with them um, about, you know, how would we design TREAD2 and maybe we need to be looking more um, at the clinical phenotypes and the genetics of these patients who, who truly could have a phased withdrawal, not necessarily of all their medicines, but pretend, you know, maybe just the MRA or the ACE inhibitor or just that beta blocker, whatever they're potentially incurring more side effects from. And so I think, I think that that's in the works and, and, you know, I would be um, interested to see what that, what that looks like. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, you know, another, another sort of question that, that goes along with that is, um, you know, how, how long are you going to be in remission from heart failure? How long can we, um, you know, expect that you'll have a favorable response to um, these medicines? And I think that's something that we're actively looking at as well. So is there a particular population? Not right now. I think the CRT population, there was a recent study by, um, I think from Cleveland Clinic, Wilson Tang and his group that looked at um, CRT and turning off CRT um, and or or weaning medications in CRT. And that may be a population where, um, you know, just the presence of CRT pacing therapy is enough and has normalized the heart enough where we could start to wean medications, but really remains to be seen. Is that talking about like the quote unquote super responders to CRT? Correct. Correct. People with, you know, a very, very wide left bundle branch block um, and their neurohormonal profile, their ejection fraction, their volume, everything really normalizes in their class one symptoms with CRT pacing therapy and very little medical therapy. I think we all see those patients in our clinic and we're like, Okay, you are you have definitely responded favorably to CRP CRTP. We are not taking we are not you know uh, uh, losing this. Got it. Um, and we've kind of gotten to this point. I want to circle back now uh, to our patient and look at like what does the what do we know or what can we maybe think about what lies in the future for her? So she's had improvement of her ejection fraction. It's now normalized and we think that we, and she should, you know, stay on her medications long-term. Um, but as you'd mentioned earlier, she's still at risk for future heart failure events. Um, in specific, like, um, do these patients have, um, do they have fewer hospitalizations? Are they still less likely to have, um, LVAD implantations or ICD implantations than, our, hef, our other HEFREF patients who have a persistently low ejection fraction? Yes. Um, their clinical profile and their risk is definitely um, better or, or, or improved as when we compare it to um, HEFREF populations. However, I think the, the important message that we have with, and, and the conversations that we have with our patients are, you know, just because you're recovered or you're now in remission from heart failure, doesn't mean that we we stop being vigilant and we stop um, you know seeing you in clinic your medications um, you know occasional imaging biomarkers sort of watching for um, any um, uh, new events in terms of downturn in in those in those markers and we do know that patients are at increased risk when we compare them to a general population so there's sort of this um, um, risk that you have of time spent with reduced ejection fraction heart failure that you can never get away from. Okay. 
So while their risk is lower than other patients with persistently reduced ejection fraction, they do not have a normalized risk profile in comparison to the general population as a summary. Correct. Okay. Um, thinking about how to, what, how do you follow up with these patients? Like how often are you following up a patient who has a recovered ejection fraction? So this is a very, um, very important topic. And we are, um, uh, putting together a consensus document to sort of help, um, the, you know, our, our community at large, how do we manage these patients? What do we look for? Um, how do we make sure that they stay in remission? And one of the things that we've, um, we've tried to do is we want to risk stratify this recovered EF patient because everyone's not the same. You know, a 35-year-old patient who's recovered, uh, we may follow a little bit um, differently than a 65-year-old patient who's recovered. Um, when, they, when patients do have, um, you know, a drop in their ejection fraction, a new event, rise in biomarkers, we want to be intensifying medical therapy, and we also want to look for underlying things. As you mentioned, our 64-year-old had an angiogram with no coronary disease, but 10 years down the line, if her ejection fraction is 25%, you know, we should be looking for coronary disease at that time. So you're, you're allowed to have new things happen to you. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and a lot of those things are going to be um, secondary to our lifestyle and um, aging. So coronary disease, atrial fibrillation, um, hypertension, obesity, those types of things that may affect um, you know, our patients with recovered cardiomyopathy. Um, we look at genetics and um, just to look at sort of risk over time. Again, looking for those bad actor genes like Lamin. Um, and so, and I think, you know, it's important that we, that these patients aren't lost to follow up, that they see us every year, one to two years, that we check biomarkers, that we do intermittent imaging. Um, similar again to that um, patient in, in oncology clinic who is in remission, but still following up. Um, to avoid recrudescent heart failure. Mm -hmm. Got it. Very nice. Um, in thinking of that follow-up, there was an, another patient that I encountered at the VA who had um, very similar um, at a veterans. Uh, so a male, he had an improvement of his, he had a dilated cardiomyopathy and then an improvement of his injection fraction from I think his nadir was like 25% and he got up to 55% and had done great for like 10 years. He also had an ICD implanted. And then uh, time came up for his uh, ICD for the generator to be changed. His EF was I think still 50 at that point. And so they went ahead and did his generator change. Never, it was implanted for primary prevention. It had never been used. Uh, and then a year or two after his generator change, uh, he has a VF arrest and his ejection fraction is 45%. And seeing that case just really highlighted to me, or it raised a lot of questions first in that it was surprising that there was this risk for still this risk for VF arrest with a normalized, or you know, at this point, maybe not totally normalized, but a much improved ejection fraction greater than what our guidelines would suggest uh, for the 35% cutoff. And then also thinking about the time for his generator change and whether that, you know, how would you have made that decision? And perhaps somebody may have made a different decision uh, for that patient. Um, what thoughts do you have or, or comments can you make about this idea of 
of ICDs that are implanted and, and management for those going forward. So this is a really um, important area in recovered cardiomyopathy that deserves um, some more um, you know, focused research. We don't have, um, a, you know, our device therapy in the recovered um, EF patients is, is really not specifically addressed at all in current guidelines. Um, there is a recent meta-analysis that supports the notion that there is this persistent arrhythmic risk among recovered EF patients. I think they had about a 3% per year rate of appropriate ICD therapy in among patients whose ejection fraction was uh, greater than 45%. We also have data from the SCUD-HEF trial. Um, this was retrospective again, but it looked at um, those who had improvement in their EF to greater than 35% during follow-up. They actually accrued a similar mortality benefit with an ICD compared with those whose EF remained less than 35%. So again, there's sort of this time, this risk of reduced EF and time spent. If you sort of had an indication for an ICD at that time, um, even though your overall risk may be lower than someone with you know, a lot of scar and an EF of 10%, you still accrue a mortality benefit from an ICD, at least in the data that we have. So for my patients, unless they've had some, you know, terrible side effect from their ICD, they've got a pocket infection or a lead fracture or whatever, um, I replace, um, or they're, they're not expected to, you know, live 12 months or 13 months or something, whatever, you know, they, that discussion, um, that shared decision making, um, I'm really, you know, telling them that the, the best data we have right now supports um, the generator change. Mm -hmm. yeah. but, you know, it's, it's, it's def definitely an area that's right for research um, because, you know, patients don't necessarily want to go through that if they don't have to. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, totally, totally. I think that covers a lot of the highlights of everything when I talked about, I mean, this is a, we've had a, a, a whirlwind and covered really just a gamut of a lot of different topics uh, for these types of patients. Um, and before we close, are there other topics or issues or questions that often come up in your clinic or with consults that you see uh, that you think are important to highlight or like closing remarks? I think we've covered a fair amount. Um, and this is really, um, these are, these are typical questions and, and a typical patient that I would see in my clinic. I think what I would highlight going forward and for future, you know, for trainees and people who are really interested in this space is that patients with dilated cardiomyopathy, even if they've recovered, you know, they are still at risk for heart failure. And also we should be thinking about these patients um, actually as a family unit. And we should be looking at their um, first degree relatives, their sisters, their sibling, brothers, sisters, um, children, who may also be at risk for heart failure with reduced ejection fraction or mild di dilated cardiomyopathy. And so um, informing those patients that you know, they are at increased risk, they should get an echocardiogram, they should be screened, um, and they should modify their lifestyle to um, reduce their risk for heart failure. So really thinking about the family as a unit and moving the needle to preventing heart failure, I think um, is going to be the wave of the future. Awesome. Very cool. 
Well, I am very appreciative of the time that you took uh, out to visit with me and have this discussion. I found it very informative. Well, thank you so much for having me. It was really fun. To summarize a few of the main highlights from today's episode, patients with heart failure and recovered ejection fraction, or HEF-REC-EF, these comprise of patients who have reduced ejection fraction, which then normalizes. They are at a reduced risk for future heart failure events, but it's important to realize that they do not have a normal risk compared to the rest of the general population. These patients should be conceptualized in analogous terms to patients with cancer who are in remission. Rather, these patients are in remission from their heart failure and remain at risk for future events. Thus, these patients at, at present should continue to remain on their heart failure medications. And there was a randomized control trial, the TREAD-HF trial, which demonstrated that patients who were weaned off their medications were at greater risk uh, with having another heart failure episode. This is an active area of research, and we can expect to learn a lot more about this patient population in the years to come. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for listening to this episode of AP Cardiology. This show is sponsored in part by MedPage Today. You can find transcripts of this episode and all other episodes of AP Cardiology on medpagetoday.com. Much thanks to the band Broke for Free, whose song